Thanks, Philippa. Yeah, uh, Rosé and I are really looking forward to um, <laughs> Love Parents on. So it's Tuesday the 28th, uh, so not this coming Tuesday. Um, and it's going to be a really great time. Um, we're really, and, and as Philippa said, it's going to be a really relaxed atmosphere. We've got a prize draw, so you can win a prize. We're going to be interviewing parents as well, going to get them on the sofa and interview them. And lots of little things of how we can... Uh, the, the general theme is going to be how we can connect with our parents, uh, with our children as parents. So just looking at um, that, that connection and how we can cherish that connection so yeah we're really looking forward to it um, yes so this morning um it's been a fantastic series, hasn't it, this year, looking at um, the story of the Bible. That's what we've been going through this year. Um, and for my prayer is that it's causing us to gain uh, just a, a new love and a passion for us to get into the Scriptures in our own uh, walks with God. That, that's the reason why we're doing it, isn't it? To grow um, in our love for the Bible. And my boys, they've had an interesting love for the Bible over the last few years. Um, when they were younger, they, they were um, asked where their children's Bibles were. And so we took them up to one of their bedrooms, showed them um, the bookcase where they had these um, sort of chunky children's Bibles, and just told them to, to help themselves. Whenever they wanted to read them, like the other books, they can go and read the Bibles. Um, and for a period of time, the three of them at different points, they would just go off and say, we're going off to, to read my Bible. I'm like, great, fantastic, go for it. Um, or at bedtime, they would say, can I read my Bible tonight? And I'm like, yeah, just help yourself, go and get the Bible, get into bed. Um, and often they'd be like, yeah, Dad, can I, can I read my Bible? Mom, can I go and read my Bible? And with, with great pride, I'd be like, yes, of course, go and be washed by the word, read the Bible. But then a little bit of condemnation, thinking, man, they've got a better devotional life than, than me. <laughs> One day, one of them asks me, can, can, can you read the Bible to me, Dad, tonight? So I said, yeah, of course. So he gets into bed, gets nice and settled, then hands me a bumper book of nursery rhymes. <laughs> it turns out that any bulky book they had, any chunky book they had, thought they thought was the Bible. So all this time, I'm thinking, great, they're, they're gaining this revelation from the words. And they were reading nursery rhymes, Peter Rabbit, the, the Gruffalo. I was a little bit disappointed, thinking they're getting all these deep biblical truths and revelation. So we've, they're better now. Um, we're trying to help them to, to show them that there's, there's power in the Bible and there's, there's no revelation from Peter Rabbit. You, there's, nothing, you, there's nothing deep in there, it's just a story. But the Bible, the Bible is something to get hold of to understand the power of the Bible. T. Timothy 3.16 tells us that all scripture is God-breathed. And he's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. All scripture is God-breathed. The nursery rhymes, they're not God-breathed. All scripture, scripture is God-breathed and is useful to us. Is useful to us. So as we, we're going to be looking into um, Chronicles this morning, First and Second Chronicles. And so as we get into these books, be ready for God to minister to you. They are God-breathed. God has something in there that can speak to you. Highlight those verses. Go away and meditate on it. So on Sundays, we only have a limited amount of time, and so we maybe give overviews or we look at particular themes. So please put time aside and continue on that journey with God, looking into his word. Let me just quickly pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at your word and what it has to say to us and I pray right now by your spirit that you would open our hearts and minds that you would just still us that we would be open to what you have to say to us this morning we love your word 
and we love interacting and hearing what you have to say through your Bible. And so we just open ourselves up afresh this morning. Amen. So this morning we're going to start by watching just a short six-minute video, which will give us an overview of the two books. And then after we've watched those videos, I want us then to focus in on one major theme that we see through Chronicles, and which is the house of God, the theme of the temple of God. So let's just sit back. We're going to watch this just a short six-minute video. Don't um, switch off. Don't fall asleep, please. And then uh, we'll get on with looking at the books. The books of 1st and 2nd Chronicles. While they're two separate books in our Bibles, that division is not original. Due to scroll length, the book was divided in two, but it was written as one book with one coherent storyline. Now, in our English Bibles, Chronicles comes after the books of Samuel and Kings, and most of Chronicles is actually repeat content from those books. And so most modern readers, when they come to Chronicles, they think, wait a minute, I just read all of this, and so they skip it. And that's a shame, because this book is really unique and important important in the Bible. In the traditional Jewish ordering of the Bible, Chronicles is actually the last book because it summarizes all of the Jewish scriptures. The first word in the book is Adam, the first character at the beginning of the story, and then the last paragraph announces the return of Israel from exile. Now we don't know who wrote this book, but we can tell from details within it, it was produced by somebody who lived a couple hundred years after the Israelites returned from the Babylonian exile. Now for this author, Jerusalem and the temple were rebuilt some time ago, and as we learned from Ezra and Nehemiah, things were not going well. The great prophetic hope was that the city and the temple would be rebuilt, that God would come to live among his people, the messianic king would come, and all the nations would come live under his peaceful rule, and none of that has happened. And so the author of Chronicles has reshaped these stories of David and Solomon and the kings of the past in order to provide a message of hope for the future. And we'll see that he's designed this book to emphasize two clear themes. First, the hope of the coming messianic king, and second, the hope for a new temple. Let's just dive in and you'll see these themes all over the book. First Chronicles begins with nine chapters of genealogies, long lists of names. And you'll read these and think that this is kind of boring, and that may be true for you, but actually they're very, very important. The author is summarizing here the whole storyline of the Old Testament by naming all of the key characters in the stories. And as he does so, he shapes the genealogies to emphasize two key lineages. First is the line of the promised messianic king. So lots of space is dedicated to tracing the line of Judah that led all the way to King David, to whom the messianic promise was given. And then from David, the author traces that line up into his own day. The other family line that receives lots of attention here is that of the priesthood, the descendants of Aaron, who of course served in the temple. And so right from the start, you can see the two main themes, the author's hope of the Messiah coming to build a new temple, and it's rooted in these ancient genealogies. Now after that, the author moves into the stories about David, and most of these are going to be familiar to you from the book of Samuel, but again, there's some really important differences. So first of all, the author leaves out all of the negative stories about David where he's portrayed as weak or immoral. So Saul chasing David around the desert and persecuting him, the story of David's adultery with Bathsheba and then murdering her husband, all of that is gone. And what's left are the stories that portray David as a good guy. 
And not only that, there's also new additional material that you won't find in the book of Samuel that shows David in a very positive light. So there's a large block of chapters where David makes preparations for the temple. He arranges resources and builders and Levites and choirs. And not only that, the author also portrays David as a Moses-like figure. God gives David plans for building the temple just as he gave plans to Moses for building the tabernacle. So why all this new material about David? The author's not trying to hide David's flaws. He knows that anybody can go read about them in the book of Samuel. Rather, he's trying to portray David as the ideal king in order to make him an image or a type of the future Messiah from the line of David. It's very similar to how Jeremiah or Ezekiel spoke of the coming Messiah as a new David. This is most clear in how the author retells the story of God's covenant promise to David in 1 Chronicles 17. When you compare this story with its parallel in 2 Samuel 7, you'll see that the author of Chronicles is highlighting that neither David nor Solomon nor any of the kings from his line were the messianic king, and that when the Messiah does come, he will be a king like David. And so for this author, these stories about David from the past are what sustain his hope for the future. After David dies, we move into 2 Chronicles, which focuses on the kings that lived in Jerusalem. And again, there's lots of overlap with 1 and 2 Kings, but there are many key differences. So the author has left out all of the stories about the kings of northern Israel so he can just focus on the line of David. And there's lots of new material about these kings from David's line. He highlights the kings that were obedient to God, and he adds new stories about how their obedience led to success and God's blessing. But he also adds new stories about kings who were unfaithful to God. They didn't follow the Torah, they led Israel to worship idols, and these kings face horrible consequences all leading up to Israel's exile, a mess of their own making. And so this whole section becomes a series of character studies where the author wants later generations of Israelites to learn from their family history and so become faithful to their God and the Torah. Now the book's conclusion is really unique too. At the very end of the book, the king of the Persians, his name's Cyrus, and he tells the Israelites that they can go back home, return from exile, rebuild the city and the temple. And he says, last line of the book, whoever there is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. And that's how the book ends with an incomplete sentence. Now, of course, the author knows about the first return from exile and the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah, but clearly in his view, the prophetic hopes of Israel were not fulfilled in those events. And so this incomplete ending shows that the author's hope is set on yet another return from exile, when the Messiah will finally come to rebuild the temple and restore God's people. And so the book of Chronicles, it's the final book of the Jewish scriptures, it ends by pointing forward. It calls God's people to look back in order to look ahead because the past has become the source of hope for the future. So Chronicles concludes the Old Testament as a story in search of an ending. And that's what this book is all about. Brilliant. So hopefully you found that um, helpful. Um, yep. So this um, video shows us um, one of the major themes in there, which is the temple. Um, so in among the genealogies, David and Solomon's reign, and the other kings that eventually led the Israelites into captivity, we see the temple being built. Um, and so this next slide hopefully gives us a breakdown of the chapters that reference um, the building of the temple. And I just want to spend a little bit of time briefly running through how the temple was built. 
So it all kicks off in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, where we see how passionate David was to build something for God to dwell. And in verse 1 of 1 Chronicles 17, it says, Here I am, living in the house of cedar, while the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. So David has such a heart of worship for God, and he's keen to get this building project underway. But God speaks to him through the, the Nathan the prophet, and God tells him that it's not for him to build the temple, but it would be somebody in his family line um, that would go about and build it. That some, one of his sons would inherit this project. Um, but instead of being disappointed or upset, David actually gets really excited. He gets passionate because he thinks that he can still have a part to play in this. He can still do something because it's in his family line. He can still invest something into it and play a part. Um, and it's actually David that receives the, the, the blueprints um, of the temple revealed, revealed um, to him by the Spirit. And then to give Solomon a head start, David pulls together his resources um, and begins preparations to help his son Solomon get a start. And then he hands over the project and he commissions Solomon to become the project manager. And then in 2 Chronicles is where we start to see the temple being built. Solomon pulls together all his resources, as well as his dad's resources, um, and then he goes about appointing the right people and the work commences. A few chapters later, the job completes, the work is done, and we see God's glory filling this architectural masterpiece in an incredible way. Now, I can't give the beauty of this temple the justice that it deserves. You, you really have to awaken your imagination to really recognize the art, the making of fragrances, the, the wood carvings, the architecture, all kinds of craftsmanship and artistry to really tell this story, to illustrate its magnificence. You, you have to study it and awaken your imagination. It took 80,000 stonecutters, 100,000 laborers. For me, just the, the tea breaks, making the cups of tea just blows my mind. You think that many people on site all at once. 3,600 foremen and seven years to build. Solomon went about and found the, most, found the most skilled craftsmen, masons, carpenters, metal workers, and fabric designers in all the world and had them imported. There was to be no, no sound on the building sites. So any tool, or, so no hammers, no axe, no radios playing in the background. It had to be silent on the building site. So all the stones and the materials all had to be pre-cut in the quarries, pre-made in the towns, and then carried up to the mountain, to the site. All the internal rooms um, were overlaid with pure gold walls, gold palm trees, um, gold chains. The most holy place itself had 23 tons of pure gold. The nails, all the small nails, all, were all made of pure gold. Just about the fabric alone, the IVP Old Testament background commentary says that one chemist estimated that a quarter of a million snails would be needed to produce one ounce of pure dye for the fabric. God gave the instruction of the exact weight of each and every gold and silver furnishings and instruments that had to go inside the temple. So for every table, candlestick, hook, bowl, cup, everything else, um, every piece of furniture inside the temple, the specific detail and creation of every piece was in God's plan and God's design. 
And when the last door was hung and the final piece of furniture was put in place and the many thousands, hundreds of thousands of workers put their tools down for the final time with that deep sense of job satisfaction, probably knowing that the businesses back home would boom with referrals after that job. 120 priests, they came together, they sounded their trumpets. Just imagine that Dave Carr's not here this morning playing the trumpet. Just imagine 120 Dave Carr's playing the trumpet. And the whole nation of Israel gathers together to praise God. And then Solomon, he stands up on the doorsteps of the temple and in front of the entire assembly, he prays this prayer, which is in 2 Chronicles 6 and verse 17. And now, Lord, the God of Israel, let your word that you have promised your servant David come true. But will God really dwell on earth with humans? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Yet, Lord my God, give attention to your servant's prayer. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 1, it then says this. When Solomon finished praying, Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. And when all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good, his love endures forever. It gives you goosebumps, doesn't it? But do you know what? Do you know what the amazing, most amazing thing about this magnificent temple is? The most amazing thing about this temple is that it was just a foreshadow of something even greater. It's a prophetic picture that God gives to us of hope of what God had in mind for his ultimate dwelling place. We can get fascinated with, with buildings sometimes, whether it's watching location, 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 grand designs, maybe visiting cathedrals. I've been to Reims Cathedral and Notre Dame, both in France. They are inspiring, just awesome church buildings. But actually, the whole thing of, of holy buildings ended with Christ. In Mark 13, Jesus and the disciples, they've been ministering in the temple and they're walking away from the temple and the disciples, they turn around and and just take another glance at the temple and and they're in awe, they're they're fascinated at this magnificent building and they turn to Jesus and say, teacher, just, just look at this stonework, look at those buildings and Jesus says, one greater than the temple is here. And Jesus is referring to himself, to his own body as the temple. And we now as the body of Christ have become the true temple of God. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? So in other words, God now dwells in the church. It's to the Corinthians that Paul says, For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them, I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. The message translation of of that passage in 2 Corinthians 6.16 says, I will live in them, I will move into them. Ephesians 2 and verse 20 says, In him the whole body is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. 
And you, in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling place where the spirit lives. Again, the message translation says, a temple in which God is quite at home. So hopefully you're getting it this morning. Solomon's incredible temple in Chronicles was painting a picture of a spirit-filled Christian. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So filled with God's presence, you are greater than this temple that we see in Chronicles. The exact specifications and plans that God gave David. I mean, consider the planning the creativity, the resource, the energy, the expertise that went into this temple in Chronicles. And then consider how insignificant that comes when God designs you, the ultimate vessel for carrying his presence. When God formed you in your mother's womb, when he designed and crafted your being, your your nature, your personality, he had his presence in mind. Like a potter with clay, God lovingly and carefully put you together that he may fill you with his presence. This really does cement that, that, that covenant we've read throughout scripture, we've read already this morning. He will be our God, we will be his people, and he will live among us. So don't look to holy buildings for God. Don't come here to King's house thinking this is a holy building. The only reason this room is significant is because you're in it. Take hold of this truth again this morning. Thank God that he has chosen to display his glory in you. Remind yourself that God is moving and impacting this city through and in you. He lived in a tabernacle. He then chose to live in the temple and then he chose to live in you. Church, we are his postcode. Amen. So how can we live as carriers of his presence? How can we live as carriers of his presence? Um, Something that's um, really stood out for me in these books of um, Chronicles is um, in chapter 6 and verse 2. Let's turn there together. 2 Chronicles chapter 6. And verse 2. So how how can we live as carriers of God's presence? And I want us to look at something I believe is really an important principle of how we can live as carriers of the Holy Spirit. So verse 2, 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 2. Then Solomon summoned. Say that with me. Solomon summoned. Solomon summoned. It's a bit of a tongue twister, isn't it? Then Solomon summoned to Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes, and the chiefs of the Israelite families to bring up, to bring up the ark of the Lord's covenant from Zion to the city of David. And all the Israelites came together to the king at the time of the festival in the seventh month. And when all the elders of Israel had arrived, the Levites took up the ark and they brought up the ark to the tent of meeting and all the sacred furnishings in it. And the Levitical priests carried them up. And King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and cattle they could not be recorded or counted. So verse 2, Solomon summons the elders. Solomon summons the elders, the heads of tribes, the chiefs of the families, and Jerusalem for the dedication. 
And then as we drop into verse 6, it says um, that King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel had gathered about him. So Solomon had invited the elders and the tribal leaders, but was then surrounded by all these uninvited guests that had gathered around him. The Bible actually says it was the whole nation of Israel. So though they weren't summoned, they decided to go to the party anyway. They didn't hang about and wait to hear things secondhand. There was this, this desire, this, this desperation in the people to be together around God's presence. So summoned or not, they gathered their families, packed their holiday bags, left their works and businesses and set off to the temple so that they could be together. There's this hint of surprise in verse 6 as King Solomon stands up in front of the temple, in front of this mass crowd that had gathered around him at the temple. All these uninvited guests full of anticipation and excitement for God to reveal himself. And so church, I'd like to say that God's presence brings unity in God's community. God's presence brings unity in God's community. And so we've established that God once dwelled in the tabernacle. He then dwelled in the temple. But his ultimate plan was to live in his people. And so the first time that God fills his people is in Acts chapter 2. Where we see the believers being filled with the spirit and speaking in tongues. And actually in Acts chapter 2 verse 1 it says that the believers were all together in one place. They were all together in one place. So just like in 2 Chronicles, the people came together in one place, attracted to the presence of God. And so I believe this wasn't just physically one place, but they were together in one heart, one desire, one vision. They were able to deal with their issues enough that they could stand together and experience God. We've heard this morning already about the, the elders that cast their crowns um, at the presence of God. And that's in Revelation chapter 4, verse 4. This, this beautiful picture of the 24 elders. And um, it says that they're surrounding the throne. And as these elders are surrounding the throne, they're, 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 they're shoulder to shoulder. They're standing together. They're by each other's side. They're supporting one another. They're shoulder to shoulder. And where are they? They're surrounding the throne. God in the center. God in the the, the focal point. And in fact, they could see each other through the throne. As they're surrounding the throne, they could see one another through the presence of God. They could see one another's imperfections. They could see one another's gifts and strengths through the presence of God. And just as we look around the room this morning, uh, all the differences the diversity, the creativity, this wonderful tapestry of people. And how do we position ourselves as this wonderful community? We stand together. We stand together shoulder to shoulder. We stand together by each other's side, supporting one another and seeing each other through the presence of God. God's presence brings unity in our community. So hopefully you're getting my point this morning. Be a carrier of God and then do it in community. Do it connected to one another. Psalm 33 and verse 1. Sorry, 133 and verse 1 says this. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's like the precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard. 
I had a dream about the scripture actually um, last month, and it's, it's really stuck with me. And in this dream, I, I saw the church divided. I saw the church disunified in, in groups, segregated, separated out, and it, it didn't look good. It really was an unpleasant picture. And God began to show me that the enemy would love to bring division, to separate us out, to pick us off and isolate us. And as I got increasingly concerned, I woke up quoting this scripture, how good and pleasant it is when people live together in unity. It's like the pouring out of the anointing oil. And so for David, who wrote this in Psalm 133, for David, he's suggesting that Aaron being anointed and experiencing God's presence as he's serving in the tabernacle is just like the church living together. So David sees the connection between when we are in unity and when we are filled with his presence. There's a supernatural blessing that comes. So how do we lose unity? Taking offense with someone, thinking badly about others, losing the habit of regularly meeting together, losing our identity within the community. I don't fit in, this community isn't for me. I have no one to open up to and be the, be the real me. You know, feeling isolated, feeling lonely and disconnected, it's really, really hard. Rosie and I have been there. It truly is horrible. and So we get it, we understand it. Sometimes you really do have to dig deep and to be in his presence, to be continually filled with his spirit and then to to sort of get up and, and go and make that connection, go and find that connection with someone. In Ephesians 2, we've already read, you two are being built together, being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. So we are being built together into this strong community where no device of the enemy can succeed. So take time in our everyday lives to be both continually filled with his spirit and also reaching out to one another, finding connections among our community. So let me challenge you this morning. Who are you building with? Who's building on you? Who are you building on? Cherish your current connections. Find new connections. Bring to life old connections. Pursue unity. Find common interests. Eat together. Pray together. Be that source of life and that source of strength. Know that you are a carrier of God's presence, which brings unity to this community. So back in Chronicles, after the people of Israel experienced God's presence and they experienced the power of being together, 2 Chronicles 8 and verse 10 says that Solomon sent the people to their homes. Solomon sent the people to their communities, to their workplaces, to their everydays, and it says this in verse 10, with joyful and glad hearts. With joyful and glad hearts. A beautiful picture of a healthy community. So in conclusion, the temple is a significant theme in the book of Chronicles. The temple was a foreshadow of something greater, which is you and me filled with his presence. And one way we can be carriers of God's presence is through having unity in our community. Amen. Just in response, it'd be great if we could stand together and just just get into groups of maybe 10, 15, 
And just again, this picture in Revelation where we see the, the elders standing together. And it'd be great maybe if we just get into circles of 10 and 15 and just ask um, the Holy Spirit to, to fill each and every one of us afresh and just maybe just pray over the person next to you as you're standing with them. So maybe just in, again in groups, in circles of 10, maybe 10, and 15, 10 or 15 people. Might have to get out of the, um, the aisles a little bit or find a bit of space. And I just want us to, to prophetically declare who we are as a people, that we are a people of unity in this community, that we're surrounding ourselves with the presence of God. So just stand together. You might want to hold hands or just put your uh, hands on each other's shoulder and just start to pray for the Holy Spirit to come and invite the Holy Spirit just to fill, fill you afresh. Just pray, for the, pray blessing on the person next to you. We've already heard about victory. Just, just pray and just speak that victory over the person that you, you stood next to. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, God, for releasing your presence to us. And again, we, we invite you to come and to fill us afresh this morning. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you've joined us together that we are one people joined together and we just speak that word of unity over each and every one of us. Lord, that we would look out for one another, we would support one another, we would build one uh, one another up. Lord, would you reveal to us those that we can reach out to, those people we can connect with, that we can build with, build alongside. Thank you. Lord, as we stand together as a unified people, thank you that we have a victory in you. Thank you that no scheme of the enemy can come because we're stood together in unity. Amen.